You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave, a triple R film criticism show. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I am joined by Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard and Alexandra Helen Nicholas. We've got a full cave. Good evening to you all. Hello. 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 Now, on our show tonight... Benicio Del Toro and Tim Robbins star in A Perfect Day, a Spanish war drama set during the Balkans, set in the Balkans during the 1990s. We'll also be taking a look at the home entertainment release of Tehran Taxi, the most recent film by Iranian filmmaker Jafar Panahi. But first, The Wailing. Now, this is the latest film by South Korean filmmaker Ha Hongjin, whose previous film films, The Chaser and The Yellow Sea, were met with widespread acclaim. Having only just premiered recently at the Cannes Film Festival, The Wailing is a horror thriller set in a remote Korean village where a number of strange murders have started occurring along with an outbreak of what appears to be an infectious disease. Jong-gu, a local policeman, is on the case, but like most of his colleagues, he is hopelessly out of his depth and somewhat inept. Drawing upon South Korean shaman traditions and haunted by the country's violent past of internal conflict and colonisation by Japan, as well as borrowing liberally from Japanese and American genre cinema, The Wailing delivers a mix of exorcisms, possessions, zombies, body horror, children being creepy, paranoia and even several unexpected comedic moments. Cerise, you and I both went along to see this. I know that because I sat exactly next to you. Mm. It, it's a long film. It goes for... Two and a half? Two and a half hours? Two hours, 40 minutes, I think. Mm. Well, what did you make of this all then? And has it changed in hindsight? Uh, has it changed in hindsight? Mm. Start off with what, what did you make of it then? <laughs> I, I enjoyed it then. I was caught up in it. I didn't feel the passage of time uh, to the extent that I was very aware of it being quite as long as I had the foreknowledge of it being. Um it certainly is an odd mishmash and uh, it is marked by a series of quite stark tonal shifts. Uh, it starts off really quite funny and, and is only intermittently funny later on and occasionally at really inappropriate moments, which is quite unnerving actually after the, the, the horror elements of the film really are ramped up. It's, um, there's, there's obviously some... Uh, Korean Japanese uh, issues being worked through by the director in this film, and I do recall this previous film. The it was the Yellow Sea, wasn't it? Yes, had a a little bit of that going on in it as well, but much more grounded in real world concerns. So it wasn't an infectious disease in that as well, anywhere was there? Or am I conflating that with another film, uh, an Asian film in recent years, where one border of one. No, actually, that was a um, maybe a Chinese yeah, it wasn't disaster. The Yellow sea. No, it wasn't was some the people sea. trafficking. I think that was one of the key. Yeah, the people. Yeah, and ethnic minorities being persecuted in in China wasn't wasn't the set wasn't. Oh, this is terrible. Isn't the OSC mainly concerned with Chinese relations with South Korea? Yeah, it's all a bit foggy because I've seen a few films touching on similar territory in recent years, and one of those had the illegal immigrants coming in a container, and they were all had some disease. Then all hell broke loose in South Korea, and I can't remember quite what that was called. It's certainly something we're seeing in a lot of Asian cinema increasingly, that the tension between the different countries and a lot of sort of ghosts from the past manifesting either literally or symbolically, yeah. probably both in this case. Oh, very much in this case. And then uh, some peculiarly, I presume peculiarly, South Korean uh, approaches to exorcising them, like these the shamanic rituals 
animals in this film. I hadn't quite seen their like before. There was lots of dance and chanting and strange rituals that were not quite as any I, I, I had seen on film before. You talked that sequence was one of the highlights of the film. There are even a couple of them. Um, yeah, but yeah. there's a big one. There's yeah. a big set piece. There's sort of two really big set pieces in this film. One which is kind of the, the the finale, and then this big exorcism sequence, which are just extraordinary. I mean, what I remember about this director with the LOC is just the kinetic energy, just how vibrant and alive that film felt, how it just had this remarkable well, texture, which I'm sure isn't unique to him, but it felt unique to him while experiencing it. And there is a bit of that in this, this film as well. Well, with those uh, exorcism scenes, it's, uh, it is quite extraordinary because a lot of it's in the, uh, in the montage, in fact, because uh, folks being affected by the attempt to exorcise something from perhaps multiple bodies, uh, they're not necessarily in shot or even in the same location. And the energy is transmitted through the, the editing there because... Uh, there's actually quite a lot to keep track of. In fact, you know, the film plays that ultimately to the end in, in as much as it's trying to uh, almost overwhelm the viewer with possibilities such that I think by the time the film closes, you, so I found myself shrugging my shoulders and going, all right, well, a lot of that added up to something at certain points during the film, but ultimately there's no nice, tidy resolution. There's really not, and there's some crazy red herrings in this film as well, and there's a lot of keeping things secret by putting them very much out in the open. One of the joys I got from this film was the sensation of thinking I was smarter than it, which a lot of film film goers often do. They think they're cleverer than the film they're seeing, and then this film, very much towards the end gave me the finger and said, you thought you had one up on me and, my God, you were wrong. And I love that feeling of knowing that this film has been one step ahead of me the whole way. Alex, you haven't seen this, but you're a huge fan of his first like film, The Chaser. Dying you're you're to dying to jump in. To jump in. I'm, I'm just so heartbroken that I didn't get to see this film. I had, I think, maybe three or four people contact me from Cannes this year, all separately, saying, this is your new favourite film. I had no idea that it would be playing in Melbourne this soon. I'm really it just so excited suddenly, that yeah. it's been picked up to play here. I was away at the Sydney Film Festival. I didn't get to see it. Boo-hoo, poor me, having to go to the Sydney <laughs> Film Festival. But I adore this filmmaker. I just His first film is a movie called The Chaser, Thomas, that you mentioned earlier. 2008. If you're a fan of serial killer film, which I'm a big, big fan of, um, this is, for my money, easily the best serial killer film of the last 10 years. It's just an extraordinary film. And what I'm really fascinated is not just the cultural specificity that you guys are talking about. What I really like about uh, South Korean genre film, and it really comes out in The Chaser in such an aggressive manner, is its ambivalence. It's so ambivalent. I think Italian giallo film might be the only other kind of national genre, generic instance that I can think is so... They're very different kinds of films, so I'm not comparing these films to giallo, but they're really marked by a really intrinsic ambivalence. Um, The Chaser is diabolical in the lack of fucks it gives. It's just um, remarkable. And it is that thing where you're, you're constantly trying to think ahead and you're thinking, oh, I'm really onto this, I'm really onto this, I'm really onto this. And then you f- realise that the film really doesn't care what you're onto. It's too busy doing its own thing. Like, it's just amazing. I'm fascinated by this idea of shamanism too. Please tell me more about this. Like, Well, song and dance, drums, <laughs> rhythms. Uh, it seems such a mishmash, the film overall, because it's pulling on all sorts of different uh, mythologies. Yeah, I mean, not all Eastern. No, I mean, it, it tips its hat very much at The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. That kind of permeates its way through this film. A lot of uh, George Romero zombie films are definitely felt in this film, both in a serious, disturbing way and a comedic way. There is a sequence in maybe the last hour with with the kind of zombie type figure, which is really violent and over the top in that very schlocky, fun way. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it's taking a lot of ideas from different from different 
genres and nationalities and mashing them together in that way that is really particular to a lot of Asian cinema, actually. I think often in the West we forget that other parts of the world don't get so tied up in knots about tonal consistency. I mean, a lot of Japanese film plays really wild with tone and genre and we see it in South Korean film and maybe in a slightly lesser degree in some Hong Kong cinema as well but it's refreshing to see it done so well and I I noticed those tonal shifts but I didn't find them jarring it all kind of worked in one kind of crazy messy hole but there is certainly an ambivalence there in this film and um, it's it's, it's playing on cultural anxieties rather than pushing across an ideology so certainly the sort of there is a sense of xenophobia that's partly towards the Japanese mm-hmm. that's partly fair enough and partly completely unreasonable I would really that's in this up. film but um, it's, it's not making a statement Sorry to interrupt, yeah, I'm really ahead. fascinated like there is certainly an overlap I think by different kinds of um, Asian genre film, especially horror but also I think K-horror and J-horror are just dramatically different in so many ways, they might pick up on the same kind of iconography um, and they're similar traditions but like you said I think that they deviate in, in really dramatic ways as well I mean, I'm, I'm partial to Korean horror over Japanese horror. Um, I find that it's a little less um, stable in a way in terms of co- generic codes and conventions. I always feel that there's a bit more danger in Korean film and that it really, that ambivalence, you never quite know. Whereas Japanese, even more extreme Japanese horror, I think there's a certain consistency, um, even ramping up to like the Japanese gore stuff. You kind of know where you are. Korean horror, I still really, and I've seen quite a lot of it, uh, I still really am quite shocked, n- not just by what I see, but also by these kind of conceptual deviations that you guys have been talking well, about. A really odd one in this is this weird conflation um, of uh, the Japanese um, culture uh, and and how it's demonised, quite literally, you could say, in this film, but how it's also conflated bizarrely with Christianity and Catholicism in particular, which is utterly bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, in order for... Koreans and Japanese seemingly to understand one another in this film, it requires the uh, an intermediary figure of a Catholic priest who's Japanese. It's really odd. And I mean, I, wow. I suspect that's yes. probably quite far removed from reality. But um, a lot of this film is grounded in certain sorts of reality, so you start to wonder. It really does, does play a lot at various levels of... Um, Plausibility. Some of the the everyday life is shown in this is really quite um, realistic. Yeah. Um, though I believe it was all shot with natural light as well. Like I think yes. there was an attempt to give it a, a kind of era of realism in the way it was shot. Yeah, it definitely felt like that. Um, but then you know the comedy elements. So you've got this slight heightened. Uh, you know, the, the, the protagonist is pretty dopey, mm. but then other people around him are smarter and seem a bit bit more. Uh, well, real, realistic. Yeah. But then as things, as the horror elements come in, we start to suspect that some of those, the way they're treated, are actually treated semi-realistically. There's old faiths and folklore that is tapped and certain rituals. I presume those rituals are based on rituals that people might perform? I believe so. Yeah. Apparently there is, a, there is a lot of stuff taken from real shaman rituals, which are, I don't know if they're contemporary or if they exist in small pockets of Korea, but apparently the film has incorporated a lot of, you know, actual ritual practice. There's, long, there's a long, long history yeah. of shamanic practice in, in, yeah. in Korea. The, the other thing I yeah. dug about this film is it's a lot of it's shot in um, medium 
lot of shot in, in mid shot. So you, you you get a few close ups when when necessary, but a lot of the major scenes are shot at a slight distance. So you don't quite know what you're seeing. And it's it, again, it's a different style of horror and dread creation. There's not sudden noises. There's not sudden you know what do you call it? That kind of startle the startle uh, effect. The startle effect. Drums. Yeah, where something just suddenly flashes on screen there's a scary noise or there a is cat more appears. yeah there is more building dread and a lot of that is showing us stuff in mid shot so i was squinting at the screen sort of doing this thing like the characters in many scenes trying to figure out what the hell is that in the distance is that something i'm cool with or is that something that's going to be in my nightmares tonight and if so from which tradition is it uh, which horror tradition or which yeah. uh, <laughs> which uh, national or folkloric tradition uh yeah it is, it is a very peculiar mishmash this and yeah i found it gripping i i, I haven't really dwelt upon it uh to try to make sense of it because i don't know that that i think that's probably uh, a fool's errand well i was actually going to say it's faded from my mind a little bit but i think that's just because of the clutter of the week i've had it talking about it now has made me very excited again <laughs> so yeah, i'm going to say this is a extraordinary film I, I'm, I'm i'm genuinely sad that alex and josh you haven't been able to see it yet because i'm, I'm definitely going to see yeah. it you're both going <laughs> to <laughs> yeah, we, we might have to do a second. We might have to do a revisit once you two get to see it, actually, because I think it's going to blow your minds. Yeah. We've been talking about the new South Korean film, The Wailing, here on Plato's Cave. Uh, you're listening to Thomas, Josh, Alex and Cerise. We're going to take a look at the Spanish film, A Perfect Day, in just a moment. Three, triple, ah. A Perfect Day. A Perfect Day premiered at the Cannes Film Festival last year and it's the first English-language film by Spanish filmmaker Fernando Leon de Arenao, who is probably best known for his 2002 film Mondays in the Sun. A Perfect Day is an adaptation of a novel and stars Benicio del Toro, Tim Robbins, Olga Kurilenko and Melanie Thierry as a team of aid workers deployed in the Balkans in 1995 during the Yugoslav Wars. Now, along with a local translator and a young boy, they are assisting the team spend 24 hours trying to remove a dead body from a well that is preventing the locals from being able to access clean drinking water. Their efforts are continually frustrated by a range of reasons, including threats of violence, bureaucratic interference from the United Nations and just bad luck. The resulting film is more of a drama about war than a war film as such, I'm going to say, with even slightly dr- with even a slightly droll comic sensibility. Alex, you really dug this film. Yeah, I think Josh and I are going to get fisticuffs here. Is this going to happen? Bring it on. <laughs> you can talk like a professionals get, and adults. We're gonna, it's going to get all well creamed here. I can't use my funny voice? <laughs> oh, please bring on the funny accents. <laughs> Dumb. <laughs> In a world world where film critics disagree. Tell us us why you loved A Perfect Day. Okay, I will start by saying I went into this with very low expectations. Not not that I thought it would be garbage, but I just didn't really think that a film about aid workers at the end of the Yugoslav Wars was going to be of particular interest to me. What really struck me about this uh, was, A, I thought uh, none of the actors in this film are particularly... Uh, ring my bell and I was really struck by the majority of the performances um, Tim Robbins is somebody I'm actually generally quite sceptical about and I was quite struck um, by hi- by his performance in particular and the ambivalence of Del Toro's performance really struck me as well what I really liked about this was the something fundamentally quite 
it's a strange word to use, but almost elemental about the plot of this film, how it just takes these really basic things like nouns. So the words rope, well and ball are really what this film is constructed around. And it builds this remarkably powerful drama about war. You know, these are all like these kind of monosyllabic words that are very, very simple. And that's what this film does. Is it, you know, the word cow becomes really interesting. Bomb, you know, the, these very, very simple plot devices are used to, to remarkable effect. Car, you know, these really, really simple. It's so, it's almost, almost aggressively simple. Where this film, I think, is its weakest is where it tries to get complicated. So there's a, a particular character that I did feel that was superfluous, played by Olga Kurilenko, uh, called Katya, who didn't need to be in the film. I think that its strengths were water, well, rope, ball, the, these simple, simple concepts and the way that it was so powerful um, in using these to, to talk about the experience of people experiencing trauma and, and a kind of um, shock and disorientation and dislocation um, in a very funny, very Spanish way. I mean, this to me, it's, it's English language. It has notable American, uh, European, you know, French actors in it. But this just felt so Spanish to me. The humour in particular was just so distinctly Spanish. Um, I, I was really, really struck by this film. And it's, um, yeah, it, it worked for me. It really communicated more than a, a, t- a typical quote-unquote war film would. The, the, you know, all of those things. We were talking last year about the, um, what was the French film, the old French film we were talking about, the beautiful, great... Uh, Grand Illusion. Grand Illusion. Yeah. Like, I mean, to me, it's, I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's on that level, but, but that kind of human drama of war without really showing war, I, I, I think that it's doing something quite similar. And at its strongest, I think you're absolutely right. And I think I've probably set people up to think that I'm going to come down on this film harder, which I'm not really at all, because I agree with everything you've said. I, I really liked the ambiguity in Del Toro and Robin's performances. I think, think they're both really remarkable. I like this film, I think the, and I think this film is at its strongest when it's not trying to so overtly steer the audience audience's uh, emotions and hands towards some kind of deeper understanding. I think it works, like you said, the looseness of the plot, the fact that it really just revolves around, you know, there are soul scenes and sequences that revolve around trying to get past a cow, a bloated cow carcass on a road, and what do we do? And, and the dilemma surrounding that and the moral and, dilemma. And, and how the, can that be funny? Like, and funny and yet still unnerving at the same time, mm-hmm. the sense that uh, we're kind of, a bit like what you described in the last film, you're not sure if we're going to get that the simple someone's going to step on a landmine and that's going to be the point of the emotional sympathy. And I like the way it mostly steered away from that type of of narrative and that type of direction where I found this film at its weakest and it really didn't sort of show its hand till probably about halfway, two thirds of the way through is in some of the musical selections which really rubbed me the wrong way and there's one particularly poignant moment and I think it, it was incredibly powerful and then it lost all of its power when it plays a... Can I say the... Is it going to spoil it if I No, no, talk I, th- about, I want to talk about the music too yeah, so I'm really curious to hear what you say. There's a poignant moment dealing with Benicio del Toro and, and another character um, and at a moment of shock or at a moment of sort of slow build we start to hear incredibly loudly um, Marilyn Manson's cover of Sweet Dreams and I found it really naff I found it it was so obvious in terms of the the tempo and the emotional content and what it was trying to build up around this song but in such a sort of facile way that I felt it ruined the moment I thought Go for go for silence. That's that that moment and moments like that 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 followed would have been so much more powerful without the forced hand. And it, and it, he shows his strength as director that he didn't need those forced hands. So I think overall this is a really solid film. But it just had moments that I thought there's a bit of uncertainty around the direction of of, 
of what he's trying to get at. And I want to just flag, and we'll come back to it later perhaps, what he might be saying about the UN and the UN's involvement more broadly, but also in that this specific historical context come the end of the film because it has a quite a peculiar ending or final montage i want to can i just quickly leap on that music point sorry i'm getting all like getting all frisky and i was a bit confused by the music too actually i I wasn't too sure i actually really love the use of music in this film and this is just my reading of it so i'm not saying you're wrong and i'm right but this is how it stuck with me it's such a it's it's mostly well-known songs and it's very very diverse so you have uh, marlena dietrich's song you have um the the marilyn manson song we have the velvet underground song that we just had we have a Gogo Bordello song. But in um, general, it's all very early punk. Yeah. It's my, all so one of the characters in this film, there's a, there's a running gag in this film that one of the main characters, and I won't say who it is, but one of the main characters is here but not here. So they're trying to explain this to a translator about how can you be here and not be here at the same time. And it's about being in a situation of crisis but also kind of removing yourself from it, from being detached or being absent. And they keep saying this character's at home already. They're just not here. They're not present. They, they're, they're participating in the action that we're going through, but they're just not present. The soundtrack in this film, very early on in the, this film, reminded me of a, of, of a travelling mixtape. It's the kind of tr- playlist that you set up on your iPod when you go on a big trip. That's what it just kept reminding me of, and that scene that you're talking about with the Manson actually worked very, very well for me because I came at it from that direction. It's like that's the music that kicks in when you need it to be a cliched genre. It's like a detachment from the reality that's so it actually worked incredibly strongly for me like that's that's how i read that use of this really cliched music all the way through i thought it was fantastic it's one of the only songs they use that's actually from the mid-90s as well like a lot of the song is stuff i assumed one of the characters may have listened to when he because of the character i'm thinking of is a he i assumed it was a mixtape of one of the character's favorite songs from when he was young hence it's all early punk. i didn't even associate it with that i mean the gogo bordello song is much older so that would have mm. come out after the end of the wars and that was um to me that was the i mean and i guess the malena dietrich one too is quite a disjoint and there's but, a certain irony behind the use of that as well yeah, i no, mean definitely. some of the music's there but well. i i, I for me, it didn't feel pure. You know, the, the, the diegetic music, non-diegetic music relationship with the soundtrack was a little bit hazy, and I actually kind of, it just worked for me. It worked. It kind of latched into a lot of the themes and the things that I was getting. I, I definitely don't like. I, I agree that it was naff, but to me, that naffness was quite intended. <laughs> nice. I know that sounds a bit strange. Just as that kind of, he's here but not here. Like that, it's all about this detachment process. How do you go through something like that? And, and be absent and remove yourself from it. Well, you do it by making it a cliched thing yep. through music. I, I don't know whether... I mean, I, I, it's sounding... I like the idea of that Apologetic, reading, but, but that's just how I yeah, intuitively yeah. took it. Yeah, the, the, the deliberately bad argument. Kind of? Mm. Like, the, like work the cliche? <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's definitely how I I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I just wanted to jump in with the, the stuff Josh mentioned about the, the way the UN is framed. And it's, it's very unflattering. And I, I know very, very little about the politics of this war, and I know even less about the UN involvement. But that sentiment has been there in a lot of films and literature that deal with this era. And I, I straight away remembered um, a 1995 film, so a film that came out when this film is set could 
Underground, a magnificent mm. film by Emir uh, Kusturica. Kusturica. Kusturica, yeah. A director who I really dislike, with the exception of this film. I think this film is mind-blowingly good. And that kind of... You know, there's a character who refers to the UN as fascist in that film. That hostility about the UN's involvement is, is very much a theme with this war. Well, he's become a very controversial figure with respect to uh, matters pertaining to the former Yugoslavia. He's a, quite a, a strong Serbian nationalist, and that's not... Um, uh, that has created some trouble in those parts because he's quite a celebrity too, and yep. not just as a filmmaker, but as a recording artist too. He has his no smoking orchestra, amazing band. Is it that kind of gypsy music that's all throughout his films? Yeah, kind of yeah, yeah the, the Balkan um, music. Yeah, a big big band. Yeah. Lots of, so, yeah. so Roma, I should say, because they're, they're, yeah. they're characters who feature pro- quite prominently in his films. Um, well, I am curious about this, not having seen the film, but any, any film which steps into this territory and has as clearly a multinational a cast as this and yet is bankrolled by Hollywood, I'm very curious to know. I don't know. think it was. I no. Think, I think the funding... Uh, Thomas, you may be able to check this for me, but I think it was... It's Spanish. It may be Canadian. Uh, it's it's got some US cast in it, but I don't think there's American money in it. But then there's French cast as well. There's French. She's uh, a really interesting character, and the Melan- Melanie Thierry character, uh, Sophia, because traditionally I think in a, in a straight American film you would expect her to be the protagonist. Is everyone doing accents? Um, and are they awful? They keep their own accents. It's meant to be international. It's meant yeah. to be an international right. cast of characters, and it's all played by people who belong to the nationality that the characters are. I think this was a Spanish film. I'm just having a quick look. Um, I mean, the, 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 the production companies listed here on Wikipedia sounds <laughs> Spanish to me, and it's it's credited as a Spanish film. I, I actually had a little bit of frustration with the two dimensionality of the characters. I thought um, there wasn't enough to distinguish Benicio del Toro from Tim Robbins. We're told at the start that Tim Robbins is a bit of a, a wacky, wild guy, crazy guy, and apart from the scene that introduces him, we never get a sense of that again. And and I was a little bit frustrated that Olga Kurilenko just played the kind of naive, bordering on damsel in distress, lost innocent who hadn't been toughened up yet, where Melanie Tira... Sorry, I got those wrong. That was the role that Melanie Tirily played, where Olga Kurilenko played the sort of more hardened, realist, now kind of corporate bureaucratic bitch psycho ex-girlfriend. I thought those two women played fairly polar opposites that were a, a little bit two-dimensional. I, th- I thought Karolenko was just in the bin. Like, it's a fine performance, but I thought it was a completely it pointless is a role. She, yeah. was, she was, to me, the weakest part of the whole thing. I, I really liked uh, Sophie, the character of Sophie, the young French girl, and that, I, as I said, I think that traditionally she would be the in a more straight film, she would be the site of identification, and this film really works against that. It doesn't mock her naivety, but it also doesn't really try to profit too much on it. That's a fair point, yeah. Um, yep, okay. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. I mean, I, I think it manages to mostly sidestep the romantic interest with the Sophie character, the, yep. the Teori character. The Kurilenko character, again, it's one of those things where I, you can see their machinations in the script. It's like we need to motivate some kind of conflict for the Del Toro character in regards to his past and his romance. Let's bring in a Russian woman who he's had an affair with in the past. And it was just so transparent, and her character wasn't substantial enough to go beyond that, as good as her performance was. And that was another one of those sort of points of frustration for me. In the she film. didn't... Uh, she's also in the... I think that character, I haven't read it, but I do believe that that correct character is in the novel that this is based on. This actually won a Goya Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. 
Um, right. But I think that was the only Goya that it won. But I do think that her character is in the novel. But like I said, I haven't it read it. It would have to be a Spanish yeah. film if it was up for Goya awards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a clue. There we go. We, we, we've solved that mystery. Did this film yeah. remind either of you of Welcome to Sarajevo? It's been a little while since I've oh, seen it. I, but it did, that, that it did, came out about mid-90s too. Yeah. The, it's a winter bottom film. Yeah, I remember it? adoring that Me film. Too. But I haven't I seen it since. I honestly can't remember it. I know I've seen it. Yeah. But I can't remember much about a, it. A, a lighter. This, this was lighter. It I definitely. Mean, this wasn't quite in the territory of MASH, but it's probably closer to that than a more serious war that's a hell of a tagline. Mash meets welcome to Sarajevo. <laughs> <laughs> You're kind of. They no, should employ me it. as their marketing I'm, person, I'm actually. That. That would <laughs> a perfect day. I think sort of... I, I, I actually didn't mind this film. I, 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 didn't, I didn't love it. I didn't dislike it. Yeah, I but loved I, it. I actually loved it. A perfect day. I think it's... Yeah, it's screening exclusively at Cinema Nova at the moment. Three. Triple. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR. Tehran Taxi is the most recent film by the acclaimed Iranian filmmaker Jafar Panahi. It has, been rec- it has recently been released on home entertainment in Australia after screening at festivals last year and having a season at Acme while we were all away during summer. Uh, in 2010, Panahi was arrested for making films that were critical of the Iranian government. He was placed under house arrest, banned from making films for 20 years and banned from speaking to the press. Tehran Taxi is the third film he has made and screened internationally to great acclaim after being banned from doing so. And like his previous two films, this is not a film, which we covered way back in the day when we were just a podcast, and Closed Curtain. Uh, it's a docufiction in that it takes the form of a documentary but contains a lot of material that is more more than likely scripted or at least staged. In Tehran Taxi, he has taken the role of a taxi... The director plays the role of a taxi driver who picks up various supposedly random people around Tehran, many of whom know him or at least know who he is. The results are often playful but also at times sombre as the nature of political oppression in Iran is explored. I... I caught this film when it was screening over summer at Acme and it, it, I think it got released on the 27th so it actually made my honourable mentions list when I was doing my favourite films of last year. I think this is a stunning film. He's an extraordinary director so I haven't been able to revisit for this discussion but I'm very curious to know what the three of you think. I'll happily wager. First I love his work before he was um, uh, subjected to these uh, draconian uh, bans upon filmmaking and, and threats of imprisonment. He was originally going to be given six years in jail and banned from making films for all of 20 years. Yeah. Somehow he's managed to make three films. <laughs> Nonetheless... Well, and, they're and all technically not films. Exactly. That's, that's yet, what he does, yeah. And yet throughout <laughs> questioned whether they've been films all along or not. But then, in a way, he's been doing that throughout his career as well. And it's something yeah. a lot of Iranian art house filmmakers have long toyed with is the idea of whether the reality that they're showing, uh, such as it is, and, and often subject to all manner of uh, censorship demands and requirements, whether it even is reality, and, and often whether it's Panahi or Kiristami or Mohsen Mahmoubaf, we'll often see the whole apparatus of cinema uh, suddenly, like the, at the end of The Wizard of Oz, oh, no, no spoilers. Uh, but <laughs> we, uh, yeah, some, oh my God, Cerise. Oh, oops. <laughs> What's what's the film where the little girl halfway through the film just says, "I don't want to act in this film anymore"? So the rest of that film is in following her, uh, going the mirror. home. Yeah, the mirror. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. We, we get quite. In fact, um, Panahi's uh, interrogated by his, his alleged niece in this film. Who um, similarly, there that was in a vehicle to a bus, I think. In the mirror, in this, it's a in the taxi. This girl just gives him a hard time. She's studying film and wondering about 
uh, how to make a film distributable. <laughs> and she actually says, I'll be yeah. like, I want to be like yeah. the little girl in the mirror. That's right. Mm. And, and, and she's been advised to steer clear of, I love this term, uh, sordid realism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. I'm not sure that's a perfectly literal translation or not, but it's much better than merely dirty realism. I, I will prefer my realism sordid from here on in. <laughs> I, I think this film, though, is, is terrific. It's, yeah. it's really gripping. It's very funny. Panahi is such a warm character on screen. And he's having a lot of fun, even though some of the passengers he picks up are not having a very good day at all. And there's so much in the subtext of this film that I think would require repeat viewings to, to pick up all of the references to his own filmography, to uh, the state of current affairs in Iran, and much more besides. Um, uh, amazing. I, I, I loved this film. I adored it as well. As again, I kept coming back to the, the confidence that this filmmaker had in this film in particular with these really basic, almost, again, almost elemental nouns. So fish, rose, you know, these, these really key pieces of visual iconography in this film that are just so simple yet just so central. Um, that, that, you know, they mean nothing if you haven't seen the film, but, you know, you guys have and you're looking really knowingly and quite warmly. I mean, I think the warmth of this film is really what stayed with me the most, that, that a film can be this in, insightful and this cutting and this profound in a, in a more kind of political context. It's really saying something and it's saying it quite strongly. But there is a real warmth and a real love of film in this in this movie and and just a love of people it's just it's just the perfect balance of being really quite cutting but but so loving at the same time it's like being pushed down the stairs but having somebody there to catch you at the end it's just an incredible experience yeah i think warmth is such a perfect term to describe this film in fact uh, i actually was offside at the beginning of this film and i look i have to admit i have not seen uh, a number of panay's films in fact i think the only one i have seen is this is not a film um so you know i don't come with the the i guess the awareness particularly the textual references to his other work and, and the characters and and, and and so on and at the start it felt very um staged i was quite aware of the non-professional actors trying what i felt like trying to read a script that felt quite didactic as well it's like okay this is very upfront i get it we're discussing politics we're discussing morality of retribution and hangings and so on and this i realize now since you've been talking about the director that this is all with him off camera where the camera in, in, inside the taxi is actually focused on the back seat and the passenger side and yet as soon as he comes into play and throughout the course of the film i it's 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 hard not to be won over by him and the film itself because the characters become increasingly warm the sequences with the niece i i just adored those moments i mean it's so wonderful when when she brings out her camera and then you have competing cameras within in you know in play within the taxi and she's trying to then provide directions to a boy outside that's probably my favorite scene is when she makes her own film within the film and it's I, incredible and again that's when i think as you're right to point out Cerise, this is actually quite a sophisticated film i don't think i think you could look at this film at the surface and go okay he's made this on a small budget he's you know he's trying to make a point and the, the political points are quite overt but i think in terms of that play with representation and reality i think it becomes increasingly sophisticated as he begins to blur the lines between those different areas within the film and within the characters and, and the way they the interplay and how certain uh, characters or subjects re return at various points within the narrative yeah there are films within this film there's filmmaking within this film and yet it's not even a film he's forbidden from making films so his camera just happens to catch uh, footage of passengers in a taxi and then occasionally is uh, maneuvered so that points out upon the outside world but uh, that 
uh, paired with the, with the little girl, she disappears while somebody else comes in the car who shows Panahi a film which we are not privy to seeing. And, and that's very telling, too, that there are things that must be unseen for even for this within this film. And, I mean, who, who knows how this one was smuggled out of Iran? Famously, his first film since the band, this is not a film, uh, was smuggled out on a USB stick inside a cake. Yeah. <laughs> Such uh, a great story. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's it's it. My my mind boggles that he, he manages to f- continue to find ways to make films. That's clearly what's in his his blood. I, I I it still does hurt me a little that he doesn't have the means to make films as magnificent as Offside was, which was one of my favourite That's films. Probably the, my yeah. favourite of his. The, yeah, the, the film about the girls trying to sneak into the soccer yeah, game is spectacular, incredible. Good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, there's a, a huge blur between reality and fiction in there. There's real events used as a backdrop to a, for a fictional tale. But I mean, how many Iranian uh, drag? sort of heist movies have ever been made about sport no, not not so many and that it's one of the most gripping films um it's just it has that great sense of urgency and i think his cinema generally does and a real social conscience mm. and he's always been very interested in the um the position of women in iranian society and and He's, and I think especially as they are perhaps the people within that society most oppressed. Yeah, I and think now, that, that fuels a lot of his anger and it, criticism. It does. Yeah. And now I think he, he's, he's pretty well as oppressed as most women in, in Iran. His, his movements are very restricted and his professional life is extremely restricted. And, and uh, it's not surprising, I suppose, that most of the focus on in his filmmaking now is upon his own plight but i suspect it's not just about him it really is uh it does expand uh, open out onto all of iranian society i really cringe when i hear the word docudrama i think i've just seen too many kind of feeble hackneyed attempts but this is up i was thinking a lot i mean very very different filmmakers but when i was watching this i kept thinking of peter watkins the great british filmmaker who really made his career on on the docudrama format and it's in the hands of a of a good filmmaker these are, these are just really powerful, powerful... It's a powerful way to really communicate ideas that I don't... I don't know if you could do this film in any other kind of way. I don't think you could communicate those ideas. It's a thing about restrictions and obstacles bringing out remarkable results That's from exactly their filmmakers, it. isn't That's it? That's such a great yeah. point. And, I mean, I share Cerise's mourning that he doesn't get to make films under his terms anymore but but these restrictions and obstacles that he has faced has done extraordinary things for his creativity and and just that play with us being aware that something is is not real but we still engage with it i think he's he's what he's so masterfully good at and i love that alex he, he talked about his confidence because only only a director full of confidence could stage a fake kind of car accident and have somebody who's clearly an actor bleeding being rushed to hospital and we know it's constructed but we're so engaged in the excitement of that moment i was just going to jump into that point you raised cerise about this idea of mobility and, and his i guess the way in which or the restrictions on his freedoms within the culture and i think in that sense the taxi is a kind of perfect metaphor for you know this is going to sound hackneyed but for what he's experiencing in this sense of he's he's a part of this society but he's also completely disconnected the taxi gives him a sense of mobility but he can never actually really connect with these characters these subjects for more than just a brief moment in time they're just sort of glimpses he experiences he imparts something but then he's forced to to move on i mean that's partly how well, we've been talking a lot about scorsese in previous weeks that's how schrader and scorsese saw the taxi driver in in taxi driving to nero's character drifting these drifters, drifting yeah. mobility but also utter disconnect from that social scene which you clearly sense he wants to be connected to and he's trying to be connected to but of course the irony is inside the taxi you can't be connected to it 
that's not happening at all. I think that's a beautiful summary of how he uses a taxi in this film. But also the idea that characters in his film are kind of fleeting acquaintances that he gets to spend all his intimate time with and then they're gone again. And that's something he played with in This Is Not A Film, just this idea of, you know, characters and then the actors who played those characters and it all gets blurry because it's, you know, a Jafar Panani film. But, um, but, but the idea that yeah, they, they come and go in his life in this kind of transient way, it's, it's certainly all there. I think we're all in agreement. I think we're all in agreement. <laughs> it's, it's worth making the effort to get Taxi Tehran or Tehran Taxi or simply Taxi. It's had a number of different titles. Not, not Taxi Driver, that's something else. Not Taxi Driver. Well, that's all right. Different watch film. That. Watch them both. Do it. That'll be a very interesting <laughs> double. double. It's, worth, it's worth delving into Panani's back catalogue, though. Absolutely. When you um, can. Yeah, I, I never saw Closed Curtains, which is the film he made between This Is Not a Film and this one, but I. I did. I wasn't. I, I, I saw it under a, you know, a very fatigued state, so I, I don't recall it so well, but I wasn't struck by it. As, yep. as I was by this, this one really worked. Formally similar? Uh, no, and, and it's in a much more contained uh, environment. Um, more like this is not a film, but uh, the, the details are a bit foggy in my brain. I saw it in a very jet-laggy fatigue. Okay. Sort of way. Well, I think we would recommend this one, would recommend this is not a film, and from his pre-imprisonment era, offside, uh, offside I think, a must-see. The circle is brilliant as well. Yep. Uh, the white balloon's very touching. Uh, he's the, a mirror. Great, the mirror. And the mirror. He's, he's a great filmmaker. <laughs> he's Can't a great, wrong. great, great filmmaker. You've been listening to Plato's Cave with myself, Thomas Cordwell, along with Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard and Alexandra Heller-Nicholas. We talked about The Wailing at the start of the show. That's on limited release through Dream West Pictures. A Perfect Day is screening exclusively at Cinema Nova through Madman Entertainment and Tehran Taxi is available on home entertainment through Madman Entertainment. That's good night from us. We'll see you next Monday. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.